I could ask uh, if we all stand for a moment of silence. This is a Memorial Day weekend. A Memorial Day, unlike Veterans Day, is not a commemoration of all those who have served. It is a specific commemoration for those who have served and not returned, those who have given their lives uh, in the service of this country. So let's take a moment of silence. Lord, I thank you that you don't, in this broken world, in a world that wars against you, against one another, you don't just leave us to our own devices, but you enter in uh, to the very mess that we have made, and you redeem inside out. We recognize that we are in the in-between time of when you have offered salvation and the outworking of it in this world, and the time when you will make right everything wrong with the final judgment. And in this in-between time, there is evil that needs to be restrained by force. But we also recognize that war and death are the final enemy. So, Father, for those who have given the ultimate sacrifice, we pray for those they've left behind, your comfort, your grace, your healing, your restoration that their memories would be kept alive in families and uh, that uh, which is the beautiful heritage would be the legacy as it moves forward with friends, with families. They would not be forgotten. But we recognize, Lord, that this is where we meet grief. You have written the final chapter. And so we pray, Father, for those that are suffering loss and those that perhaps are remembering hurts and griefs from long ago that you would enter into their pain, that you would bring them your peace as they realize your ultimate solution for this planet, for our broken hearts, your offer of grace and salvation. So in the dichotomy that is this broken world and, and how we need to be in pushing back, we pray, Lord, that you would make us peacemakers, that we would be your sons and daughters, that we would be um, about the ultimate victory the ultimate rescue mission, the ultimate pacification of this world, and that is every knee bowing before you. So we thank you that we are not alone. We thank you. You go before us in the good and the bad. And we pray your presence. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you. Please be seated. There was a, uh, a, I'm trying to, it all blends together because this is a pattern that keeps repeating itself. But there's this, uh, when I was, man, when I was in school, like ridiculous number of decades ago, like grade school, uh, California schools were like, like the, the envy. You know, I was in Virginia and Alabama, and yeah, they were good school systems. They were good school systems. But we can argue what happened in all sorts of different things, but let's just say uh, education and schooling have kind of gradually, gradually gone down. At least we're ignorant enough. We don't know how ignorant we are with the rest of the world. So ignorance is bliss. They did a test of Americans, Japanese, Finns, um, 
Nigerians, I mean, just, just like 30 different countries, and it was math and English, and they said, how well do you think you're going to do? It was a test on self-confidence. Americans scored top of the class, right? And then, you know, Finns are at the bottom, and oh, I don't know if anyone's going to like me, and in Japanese are quiet, and you know, it's just your cultural stereotypes you could just map out in terms of how people expect it to do. What do you think the results were? Icarus! Pride goeth before a fall, right? Um, the Americans score at the rank bottom of everyone, uh, lower than Africa, anywhere else. I mean, places where there is an infrastructure, uh, math skills are just abysmal. And um, all, the, all the humble countries, they're just, wow, top of the world. You wouldn't, wouldn't know about it. There, there's a lot of reasons there. Well, when that, these studies started coming out, people panicked. We got to do something. This, there was the space race earlier, and that was kind of the Cold War competition. We got to do science and math and race to the moon. Well, that, that kind of faded. And so this was kind of a new, how can we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and, and make sure that kids are getting, getting what they need? And so there was this entire overhaul, and it was uh, you know, testing and merit-based testing and teachers and students and all of this, and, and scores were going up. Schools seemed to be doing well. But what happened, there were, there were classes of people, when they went on to further study, they crashed and burned. Because the only thing that they were being taught in this panic was what was going to be on the test. So that they would do well in the test, and the teacher would look good, the school would look good, the kids would look good. And they actually knew the stuff. Nobody was cheating, but that's all they knew. And then when they went on, this, the foundation stuff that wasn't there and the other things that, that were supposed to be there, they weren't there, and it was crash and burn. They were super right in one area, the area of measurement, the area of the test. But other things that were supposed to be there, that were presumed, that, that would, needed to be built upon, they weren't there. And when anything else was asked for, there was lacking. Now, now you, guys, you guys might... might appreciate my physique, so you can appreciate this next statement. You know, I did sports in high school, and I really wanted to do, you know, sports in college and major league sports, but as comedian Bob Smiley says, um, the one thing holding me back from going to the big leagues, major league sports, was I was just so scared of hypodermic needles because of the sports doping. It's a joke. Work with me here, guys. Come on. Is this thing on? Did I hook it up right? Sports doping, because you can be so right in hitting this benchmark, home runs, Tour de France's, other things, and you were right, you nailed it, you got it, but you weren't playing according to the rules. You weren't right in the other areas that were presumed would be right, and then when people looked into that, all the results were taken away beyond an asterisk. And so we have this sense of there are certain areas that we look at, that we measure, that we celebrate, that we laud. And if we can get those things right, then the rest of life must be great. That's why we love Hollywood stars and we love it even more when they crash and burn, right? Because we see, oh, they have all of this, I'm jealous. Oh, the, the rest of it was out of, out of place. I don't seem so bad after all, or I don't seem to be such a loser. See, one, what we're looking at now in the Gospel of John, continuing our series, is we're look, this is the crucifixion narrative. And what, what is driving this is that we have two very different perspectives in terms of what God is looking for. We have a religious perspective that is saying God has laid out what, what he expects from us, and as long as we get those benchmarks right, then everything else doesn't matter. 
Whereas what God was saying all along, the ultimate revelation wasn't in miracles, wasn't in judgment, wasn't in prophecy, wasn't in the spoken word of God. But the ultimate revelation of his heart was his son who says it's relational, it's holistic. The word holy means to be set apart, to be entire. So he says every part of you is important. It's not just getting this part right, but it's getting the entire person more right. And that's the difference between righteousness and being right. Think of a, everyone look back to that clock on the wall. Go ahead, go ahead, look back, crane that neck, crane that neck. Um, Analog clock, got face hands. Now suppose it's broken. Suppose it's just the batteries are dead and it doesn't work. That clock would absolutely still be correct twice a day, right? When it just happened to naturally be that time, the clock would be correct. And so you could say, yeah, that clock works. That that clock tells the time. It tells me what it is. It's absolutely right. This time, this is the time. That's what the clock says. But the other, um, whatever 3,600 times 60 is, uh, number of of seconds that that the, um, the, the time it is that the clock's not reflecting, it's absolutely wrong. That's what happens to us when we just test to benchmarks, when we just live to benchmarks, or when we just see our faith as conforming to benchmarks. This is the big mistake in religion. As long as we keep these rules, we are good, we are right. It doesn't matter what else is going on in my heart or in my head or in my family or in my work or in my community. As long as these things are right and it's the benchmark, I have tested for it. And people celebrate it, and that's enough. And what God was saying is with the revelation, I love you too much just to keep rolling through religion, just going through the motions. God's great cry in Isaiah, my people draw near to me. They were rocking out worship. They were rocking out study of the word. They were doing Bible studies. They knew his word. They knew his truth. They came together. They were singing all the time. You couldn't get Jews together without just this praise going up to God. But he said, it makes me sick because I see their heart. And the fact that they're so right in in the performance just shows how much off they are in other areas. And it wasn't a sense of you're doing it wrong. It's you are missing out so much. I am missing out so much of your hearts. You're only giving me Sunday for an hour. I want all of you 24-7, seven days a week, eight days a week. We'll beatalize this. Um, More of you. And so we're going to look at basically... How the people of God, the people that knew God's word better than anyone, could actually murder God and believe that they were serving him doing so. John chapter 8. Very simple truth. And God has shown us throughout scripture, throughout his life, this truth. And the motivation's fine. We want to be right. But being right is not the same as being righteous. Being right means you're correct right here. Being righteous is that correctness applies to every single part of your life. It applies to your relationships. It applies to your heart. It applies to your thoughts, your your daydreams. Every single part of you is right in terms of apprehending God, apprehending yourself, apprehending others. So being right means in this moment, in this designation, I'm right. Anyone can be right. Is Satan right? Is Satan right? Yeah, absolutely. You believe God is one, the demons also believe, and they tremble. Yeah, totally right. Nailed it. Nailed it. Satan's got better theology than you guys. You weren't too quick off the the line there. Um, Is he righteous? Not at all. 
Not at all. So being right can be very different than being righteous when we look at Satan. So why do we test benchmarks? Because it's human nature? Because we can control? Because we can manage at least that much? And if I can manage at least this much, I'd rather be right twice a day than never at all. But God has a better way for us. A much better way. Let's look at the narrative. We're, we're, we're running short on time, so I'm gonna, I'll blow through this reasonably quickly. So what happened, we had a Peter taking matters into his own hands. Jesus had been preparing him. I must die. There's a bigger picture. There's more of this. There's surrender. It's good that I go away. It's the Holy Spirit been working with him. So gentle. Serving them. Loving them. And just when he thought everything had gone, you know, he had prepared them, Peter just clumsily takes matters into his own hands. Jesus has to, you know, kind of stand him down. He was looking at the wrong kingdom immediately we fall, fall, fall into this. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus. Uh, they took him to Caiaphas. John, John doesn't give us too, much, too many examples. Caiaphas is the high priest, the one who's instigated this arrest. The Jewish uh, leaders uh, took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor, the Praetorium. By now it was early morning. They'd been interrogating him all night. And to avoid ceremonial uncleanliness, this is a word in the Old Testament that's translated abomination, This practice is an abomination. It's translated ceremonial uncleanliness. To avoid an abomination, they did not enter the palace because it's a Gentile place because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. There we go. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Does he answer their question? No. What was the assumption? If we determine he's guilty, you just have to do what we say. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. Touche. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. Um, That's technically not true. Um, Of all the peoples that were conquered by the Roman Empire, there's only one people that were given a right to to execute, and it was the Jews. But it was only for one, one thing. In 1879, they dug up, it was an archaeological dig, and they dug up the actual sign um, that, that many years later had translated the stone sign that was the dividing wall in Jerusalem. Now, the dividing wall separated Jew and Gentile. You could go to the temple. You could go to God. God was saying, my house will be a house of prayer for the nations. There'll be a highway from the most pagan places of people coming to see me. And, and they, would, they, would, they, would come, um, they, they would come to hear. They would come to... Um, do business. This is why Jesus got so upset with the people in the court of the Gentiles. Nobody could get in to hear God. But it was this dividing wall that kept him out. And the sign said, if any Gentile steps his foot through here, you only have yourself to thank for your immediate and impending death. And so the Romans said, the Jewish guards, the temple priests that were arresting Jesus, they could immediately execute any Gentile that tried to get closer to God into the Jewish temple beyond this dividing wall. Um, but beyond that, they weren't allowed to kill anybody. So Jesus was a Jew, so him going to the temple, that, that wasn't going to be grounds to kill him. They needed the Roman governor to say, okay, we have the authority to kill anyone for any reason. He's a non-Roman. What are you charging him with? And, and they were hoping to get him um, executed. Um, this took place to fulfill what kind of death Jesus had said about the, uh, to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. In, Jesus, in John chapter 3, verse 14, Jesus compares himself to the snake that was lifted up in the Old Testament, uh, Numbers 21. And what happened, the people kept complaining against God and complaining, and he said, okay, forget it. 
and he let just poisonous snakes come amongst them. And they said, get the snakes away. And he said, no, every time I do that, you guys turn away from me. So he had Moses put up a bronze snake, and he said, here's my solution. Anytime you're bit, look to the snake, I heal you. You want to do it your own way? Good luck with that. And so there were people that they were bit. They looked up to the snake. They were healed. There were other people that said, this is stupid. I don't, believe, I don't want to do it God's way. They were bit. They got sick. They got sick. Then they looked to the snake. They were healed. There were people that wandered off book. They were too far away when they got bit. They couldn't see the snake. Or there were people that patently refused to. But that's how God worked it out, that people had a choice. Something's lifted up. Do you draw yourself to it for healing, or do you go away from it to remain in your condition? So Jesus said, as the bronze snake was lifted up, so the Son of Man will be lifted up, and in doing so, I will draw all people to myself. Who do you say I am? God or man? Um, in John 12, Jesus had said, uh, this is the death that I'm going to die, being lifted up. Being lifted up is code for crucifixion. It was just, it was a euphemism. I'm going to be lifted up. It doesn't mean I'm going to be hung up on my boards, you know, study-wise. It means I'm literally going to be hung up on my boards. So when Jesus said, I am lifted up, everyone knew immediately, Roman crucifixion, shameful, brutal, dehumanizing, horrific. How could God do that? Isn't the test for being right? Isn't the test for having the right answer? Jesus is the teacher. He's the one from God that shows who God is, and he tells us all the right answers. So, so we have crib sheet for the final exam in the, in the final judgment, right? That's what Jesus does. He gives us information. And he gives us relationship. And so there was this sense he knew he was going to die. This is the death that he was going to die. And so we see these people, their, their hatred, their extrajudicial work, just playing into God's ultimate plan. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked? Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? Your own people. How did the book of John begin? He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you, you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, Peter, my servants would fight to, present, to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify, literally to witness to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews who had gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. Jesus had the true sense of two kingdoms. He had a true sense that my kingdom is not of this world, but my people are absolutely of this world. It was the ultimate rescue mission. So he wasn't trying to rearrange corridors of power in the way that man would work out and adjudicate this. He was drawing hearts and drawing people to himself, even as they brutalized him. See, Jesus had a clear sense of the ultimate over the immediate, the real thing over the sure thing. And, and in our panic and in our limitations and our frailty, we get it the other way around. We go for the sure thing. We go for the, the urgent, the next thing. And so Pilate is now trying to maneuver. He's now trying to work different ways. He sees he's innocent. This is an eternal squabble. This man, he's not a revolutionary. He said his kingdom's from another place. He's not a threat. So his initial panic. See, Pilate was in a difficult place because he was, he was given the ultimate political job. If you can rule Judea 
you pick anywhere you want in the Roman Empire and your next position is going to be there. Anyone who could make Judea and subdue it is going to be a hero in Rome because that was the wild, wild west, the wild east. There was always crazy stuff going on. And your political career wasn't going to last too long if you didn't do well in Judea because it was such a loose cannon. And so Pilate was like, he was, he's an ambitious person and this is his chance to go up and impress Caesar. So these threats of insurrection and other things he's taking seriously. Once he sees Jesus, this guy is not one of these crazy revolutionaries. He's innocent. I don't know why they're so hacked off, but I'm going to work to have him released. So not finding a basis, he tries to work the leaders again. So he appeals to this. But it is your custom for me to release the Jubilee, one prisoner at the time of Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? No, they shouted back. No, not him. Give us Barabbas. Barabbas had, been ta- had taken part in an uprising. Other gospel accounts tell us he was a murderer, he was a revolutionary, a no-goodnik. Um, basically, the leaders hated this guy, and there was, they were glad he was behind bars. But have you heard the expression, the enemy of my enemy is my brother? That's what's happening here. And so they're saying anything against Jesus, even this terrorist will have him released. Hey, a Boston bomber? Yeah, we'll cut him loose. But that Jesus dude, he's going down. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe. They went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, here's the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, 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 crucify him. How could they get there? How could they do that? It gets deeper than we think. Jesus was actually flogged twice, not once. Um, what Pilate was doing here was trying to play upon the compa- basic human compassion and sympathy. There is no capital crime. There is no charge. You guys are upset. I don't know why. So I'm going to have him flogged. I'll let my guards rough him up a bit. You see that whatever bullying or payback or whatever it is you guys want, it, we can do and he can go. And, th- and that's it. And so there's three types of floggings that can be administered by, by a, a governor uh, or, or prescribed. One of them is like... we. It'd be like a caning in the Middle East for, you know, dropping gum in Singapore or something. It's this, like, this sense of a whipping or a beating or a whooping. When I went to public school in Alabama, a vice principal gave you a whooping with, with a cricket bat. That would be kind of, it's not pleasant, so I hear. It, it isn't pleasant, but um, this is like the lightest punishment where you're basically humiliated, you're whipped, it hurts, you get over it in a week or so, and, and that's that. And then there was a flogging that was a punishment for a crime, and that was the whole punishment. And that's where you're lashed down and whipped. And then there was the third one, the fusilagio, and that was where there's a cat of nine tails with bits of bone and barb and glass and stuff that are put in it that would rip the skin off. Peter, uh, the other Gospels, um, they only mention the last flogging. This one mentions only the first. So, so Pilate wanted to have him released, so he ordered the first flogging where he was just whipped. Stripped, you know, shirtless, whipped, and then he's all bleeding, so they put this purple, they're just having fun with him. Close your eyes. You've been to Easter services probably. You think of the crown of thorns, what comes to mind? 
you're probably thinking of something like this. You look at the screen, right? That it's this round kind of thing and it's got these barbs and it kind of hurts and you can stick it in. Not at all. There was one thing that had barbs in that area that they would wind to torment people with and it was the, the, the thorns of the date palm. This is the date palm. Thorns are this long. Okay. Secondly, the reason we have this whacked out idea of the crown is this was based from medieval painting that was based on uh, European crown. You know, Otto I, you know, or, or something. And so there's this little, like, round thing. It was based on Caesar's garland that was placed on a monarch's head. And we say a crown. So we think a crown of thorns was like that. Eastern kings had these wild, crazy crowns. Um, and all of them did. That really looked a lot more like that. So when somebody said, hey, let's make a crown, nobody would have had the concept of this neat little kind of doily thing that goes down on somebody's head and it hurts. What they're thinking of are spikes this long, the date palm woven together, and that whole thing, it was a bush like this that was just jammed down, you know, Daryl Dawkins fro kind of thing that was just jammed down on his head. And that was the spectacle that the people saw. That it was just unbelievable brutality. He was whipped. He was bleeding. He was beaten. He was spat upon. He was mocked. He had this giant thing stuffed down his head. The amount of blood probably made him unrecognizable. And he said, behold the man. Have I not done enough to this poor guy? There's no charges against him. And rather than having compassion, rather than having mercy, rather than his basic human decency, man, that guy has suffered enough. This will teach him to keep his mouth shut. Whatever. Something within them just just riled up this sense of crucify, crucify. It was a bloodlust. And, and Pilate saw this thing just slipping away from him. So the verses continue, and I'll, I'll cut to the chase. He tries to, uh, he tries to uh, outmaneuver them, and they say, no, 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 no. We have a law. It's blasphemy. And so he's like, oh, no. Last time somebody claimed to be God, there was a huge riot. My predecessor lost his head. This sounds bad. So he goes in and he questions Jesus, finds no basis. He comes out again, and again, it's the same thing. He's like, you take him. By this time, Pilate's disgusted. He's like, you don't respect Jesus. You don't respect the law. You don't respect me. You want to do what you want to do, and you're not going to be satisfied until this happens. And so let's just cut to verse 19, 12. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting. It's not all, it's not all Jews. To the Jewish leaders. There were people weeping for him on, on the Via Dolorosa, okay? So let's just remember that. The Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out, sat him in a judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which is an Aramaic as Gabbatha. Um, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Remember that. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked, we have no king but Caesar. They just broke the second commandment. For being rule keepers, for being so fastidious you wouldn't even say Yahweh for fear of taking the Lord's name in vain. You shall have no other gods before me. They're willing to say or do anything to have their, their ultimate desire done because they believe they've tested out of this class. They got the 612 nailed. So even though their hearts 
are saying in a heat of passion are revealed, they don't see anything wrong with it because they wanted to keep the Passover celebration. They kept themselves clean by not going into a Gentile residence. They're murdering God and they have God's blood on them literally and metaphysically and they still believe they got it right because they colored in the, right, they colored in the lines. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. Said anyone who, they they brought this this charge is no friend of Caesar. This scared Pilate. Friend of Caesar is an official Roman title that's given to the up and coming, the best and brightest. The, The wunderkind, freshman senator who's got this huge career ahead of him. The friend of Caesar. Only a few people in the kingdom were ever friends of Caesar at any given time. Pilate had been given this title. And so they're saying, we're gonna get this title taken away from you. We're going to make such a stink and a noise over this that you are no friend of Caesar, that you claim to be a friend of Caesar, but in fact you're supporting a counter-revolutionary. And so Pilate's like, okay, you're not going to stop until he's dead. Fine. This is where he washes his hands in other gospels and says, go away, do this. John just minimizes what's going on in the horror. And he allows this, Jews that knew the story and what was going on and could put themselves in their shoes to just let the dichotomy rip their hearts apart. It was noon, and he's handed over to be crucified. On the eve of the Passover at noon, that's when everything changes in celebration. People have been looking forward to the Passover celebration, celebrating God's judgment passing over them, the the blood covering them so the angel of death didn't get them. You, You see how that's connected? And they look forward to celebrating that. And there were all these traditions and things that were going on. And everyone knew at noon of the um the the eve, um just before sundown, all work would stop. And then everyone would go into their house and they would get the leaven out. And they would make sure that all the leaven is completely out. Leaven being a a symbol for for sin because leaven gets anywhere. Just a little bit of this stuff. And it's just all over infecting. So people knew how hard it was. And God wired it in so they could see, man, the point of Passover is for me to see how much sin is in my heart now, not how much leaven is in my closet. And that was the purpose. So what happened? God is going away to be executed And the people were about keeping the rules. I'm going to clean my house of leaven. Um, I'm going to stop work. I'm going to do it right. There's one more thing that happened at noon. The Passover lamb was prepared to be slaughtered. And so we have this parallel of what God was doing in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, and what those who thought they were following God and coloring in the lines did unwittingly to even fit into that. Here's the crazy thing with Passover. It was never meant to be a rote celebration. It was never meant to be do this, don't do this, and then you're right. Here's a crazy thing that's going to mess you up. How many people believe there's contradictions in the Bible? Not paradoxes, not mysteries, straight up contradictions from God himself. Okay, Um, we're not going to look at the English translation because translators mess this up. If you want to talk to me later, I'll show you the Hebrew. It couldn't be more stark. Um, In Exodus, the command to celebrate the Exodus is this. You shall roast everything over a fire. You will not boil anything. You're in haste. You're doing this. Makes sense. Okay, we'll roast it on a fire. We're not going to boil anything. Got it. Done. Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law for all the generations. And it said, this is a statute for you and all your generations in perpetuity. Deuteronomy, the parallel verse, what does God say? He says, you shall boil the sacrifice. You shall not let any of it touch fire. And if you do, you'll be cut off from all generations forever. 
Now, what English translations and every English translation has done is said, oh my God, this looks like a contradiction. It can't be because God does not make contradictions. So our knowledge of Hebrew just must not be that good. And even though every single time this one word is used, it only means roast and fire. And every time this other Hebrew word is used, it only means boil. We just must not know Hebrew enough and boil must mean roast. And so we're just going to translate both of them roast. It's not true. It's not what the Hebrew says. It's not what God said. You see, um, this wasn't an issue until the Bible was translated into English, and then it was never an issue because this got buried. But this was a big issue for the Jews all along because they read Hebrew. It was their native language, and they understood the difference between roast and boil. And so all the Jewish commentators were going, what is up with Yahweh? They weren't saying, oh, well, God made a contradiction. There must not be a God. Atheists win. Their problem was, what kind of God would confound us like this deliberately? He told us to do this or else, and then he told us to do this or else, and it's got to be forever, and it's got to be forever. How do we celebrate the Passover? Who are we? Well, maybe it's not just getting the rules right. Maybe it's not getting every single thing just arranged just so and doing the same thing every single year and you not changing. But maybe it's you don't have the answers. Should I boil? Should I roast? Why did God say this then? I got to look into the word. What was going on? Why did he say this now? What's going on now in my heart? What's he teaching the community? How can we work this out? And so there was this, these, these nails in the bed to keep people from getting comfortable and just doing the motions every time. And so the Hebrew commentators all the way through from the beginning recognize this as a deliberate contradiction from God. It shows us that the The word of God is not a rule book where we just flip through for the answer for this thing and we do it. But the the, the word of God is a window into God's heart that says, I want you to celebrate this in a way where you're not going to have all the answers. You're not going to know what to do and you're not going to be able to get this right. You're going to get it wrong. You're either going to boil or you're going to bake. But I told you to do neither or both depending on how you read it. And no matter what you do, you're going to be wrong. Are you still good with celebrating the Passover? Is, is celebrating the Passover just getting it right? Check. Or is it an engagement with God and salvation and hope and heart and drawing us in here? And the only way that happens is when we don't have all the answers. And that's what God does in his word. Because the purpose wasn't to how to celebrate this. The purpose was how do we weigh our hearts in the balance and have to hold them up to God and not knowing exactly how to do this. What is his heart in us celebrating the Passover? Not the rule book. Because he's taken that out of our hands, or at least he did for the Jews. You see, you recognize this? The, sh- the shell of the chambered nautilus, or for you math majors, fee! Um, or the golden, whatever. Okay, I'm getting off topic here. This guy. Do you know what animal lives in here? Chambered nautilus, right? Yeah, I got cut to the chase. Have you ever seen a chambered nautilus? They're freaky looking. Woo! Got to love those mollusks. That's what it looks like. That's his eye. That's his tentacles. It's his head. It's kind of like an octopus in a shell, sort of. Not really, but it is. Um, You know how it travels? Backwards. It can only look forward and a little bit to the side, and it travels backwards its entire life. It only looks, and it can only see where it's been. It can never see where it's going. And I think this is a great, great example of prescriptive religion. Because any religion says your goal, your test, 
getting it right, being right, means doing these things, whether it's 612 commandments or 10 or 50 or 1,000 or whatever it is. And you look at the past. This is what was given to us. My goal is to make it the same, make it the same, make it the same. And so I'm backing into the future like a chamber nautilus, and I bump up against something. What, what is it? I don't know. What, is, is it a cliff? Is it a music stand? I have no idea. I'm just, what am I going to do? And so in, in one hand, you're just randomly going along with the tide, but you can only see where you were, and in a sense, you can only measure yourself on what's been. Thomas Merton, a Catholic theologian, said this, we, each of us is given time, not so we can slavishly repeat the religion that was handed to us and nothing changes, including our hearts, but so that in that time we can discover more of who God is and what he would have our contribution be in building out his kingdom in new and different ways. And that requires a look forward. That requires not being anchored to, I have to get all of this right, tithing the mint and the cumin and ignoring parents, for example, and I can be righteous and the rest of me is allowed to be before God. This is the difference between religion. This is what happens when people who are executing the very God they thought they were serving. Remember Jesus said there will come a time when they will think they're, ser- they're, they're handing you over to death, believing that they're serving God. He was first. And because it was this type of a religion, and this is what is in my heart. When I look at all the things I do wrong, when I look at my failings and shortcomings, and I've been looking at a lot of those lately, um, how much I need to own. When looking at all of this, the, the natural place in that brokenness and in that shame and in that, that vulnerability is what have I done right? What can I claim? What can I stand on? What can I define? And that needs in all of us. And that's okay if we allow God to meet us there. But it's not okay if we stay there. And it becomes our armor and it becomes our defense. When we can say that whether I'm getting it or whether I'm not, God loves me just the same. So why don't I get it? Whether I'm nailing this or not, it doesn't affect any of the other parts of me. So why don't I allow God to reach into my heart and life in those ways? John was very, very minimalistic in talking about the crucifixion, probably because he was the one who remained and saw everything, and it was probably still traumatic when he was writing it. But the details he leaves out of a hearts that are just know God better than know of God better than anybody, and can double down their righteousness over God. And those that really were discovering God for the first time and it, and it could be what it was going to be, not what it was. All the difference in the world between life, between death, between where God meets us 